Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and we're joined in the studio by Melinda Person, president of New York State United Teachers. Welcome back to the show, President Person. Thanks for having me. So ever since the governor rolled out her budget proposal in the middle of January, education stakeholders across the state have been on the warpath, arguing that the overall increase in aid to public schools being advanced by the governor falls well short of what school districts actually need. The Hochul administration, for their part, is quick to note the declining enrollment at schools around the Empire State and has highlighted that their proposal of $35 billion is a new record level of funding, as we see every year, it seems, continuing New York's distinction of spending the most per pupil in the country. What seems to be the disconnect between where the education stakeholders are coming and the way the Hochul administration is framing this issue? So I think you have to start with last year when the state finally fulfilled its obligation to fund foundation aid after a multi-decade fight. And we celebrated that victory. The governor and the legislature celebrated that victory. So to come back this year, only after one year of fully funding the foundation aid formula, to see the funding essentially cut from what the formula drives was really disappointing. And you mentioned a cut. Can you sort of walk us through the mechanics of how the governor's proposal, from your perspective, represents a cut as opposed to an increase? Because that's what they're talking about. Sure. So for 337 districts, half of the districts in the state, there's an actual dollar for dollar cut from year to year. So that's that one's pretty easy to understand. The part that's a little more challenging is the school aid formula is adjusted annually by CPI. And it's been adjusted annually by CPI since it was created back in 2007. Now, this year, the Division of Budget is proposing essentially using a 10-year average CPI instead of actual CPI, which is providing districts with less money than they were promised or that the formula drives. Are there some years, though, where the 10-year look back could be advantageous, especially if, say, we have a year where there isn't the kind of inflation that we've seen recently? Perhaps. And, you know, we would welcome a conversation about which CPI makes the most sense for the long run. But it seems like this was a blunt instrument to save money rather than a real strategic decision about updating the formula. So from your perspective, then, what is the right amount of funding that we should see in a final budget sometime, hopefully around early April. So the cost of what we call present law in this school aid business is an additional $419 million. So that is the amount that the formula was cut in the proposed budget. 
And that's all. That's all we need is 419 additional million dollars. I mean, we find that in couch cushions when it comes to budget negotiations. That is so true, uh, especially the state right now. We're not in a recession, right? We are doing well. The economy is going great. We're putting money into reserves in our state. This is not the time for us to be using this blunt instrument to, to cut our schools. We want to update the foundation aid formula. We would love to have a conversation about the updating each of the elements and even talking about something like Save Harmless, which the governor wants to put on the table and have a conversation about. But we can't just cut schools and not actually talk about the formula elements that might actually increase costs for schools. Is this budget, is this the time period to revisit the foundation aid formula, which is responsible for how we distribute the bulk of our public education aid, or is that something that should happen down the road and this year it should be focused on getting some money into the state education department to actually study the issue? I think we have a very short time frame to get an on-time budget and for districts to plan for their May school budget votes. So I don't think we will have enough time to fully flush out all of the updates to the formula that need to happen. But there's nothing stopping us from getting started right now. And if we do rely on the current structure of foundation aid, which has census figures that are from back when I was still in school and have other issues with them, there are obviously some people that are clearly losers in that structure where poverty has increased and it's not reflective of their actual needs. But there are also some winners, uh, potentially, who benefit from the current structure. So given that reality, as we think about the money that's going out the door this year or could go out the door this year, should some of the schools that we know are better off getting a, a more progressive form of public education aid, which would be less than what they're being given in right now, and some of these you know, 300-plus districts that you identified which are seeing a cut, should they be getting some of that money? So when you change things like the CPI, you actually push additional school districts on to Save Harmless. Okay. So by not fully funding some of the cost drivers in the formula, you are artificially causing more challenges on the, the other side of the, the ledger. So you have to look at all of the data elements together. You can't just sort of pick and choose which ones you want to update one at a time. So I have to just note that when we talked about budgets with your predecessor, he would get very animated. He would do all sorts of rhymes and he had sort of catchphrases ready to go. Whereas the discussion with you all seems relatively grounded in reality. It might be a little skewed for your perspective, but it's calm and collected. And I'm curious whether that is a conscientious choice, whether that's just reflective of your leadership style, whether I'm blowing things out of proportion. And the second you leave here, you've got a whole like float like a butterfly, punch like a bee type of expressions you're ready to pull out. What's the, the deal there? Uh, well, Andy and I sort of we worked together as partners for so many years so uh we balanced each other out very well okay i'm not quite as animated or funny as he is but i do it's, a, it's a dry wit uh, i mean maybe but i think you know my background in policy and my experience that i've had working on the foundation aid formula i would welcome a debate about this topic with any policymaker, including the governor and including Blake Washington in the Division of Budget, right? We can have a respectful conversation about this and it doesn't have to get personal. What is important to me is that 
schools, like um, this week I'm going to be out visiting uh, schools in Bird Knox, Westerlo District, okay. one of the districts that's facing some pretty significant cuts. And we've had conversations about what these cuts are going to mean to the students in this very high-need rural district in the outskirts of the capital region. And what I care about is the impact that these cuts are going to have on those kids. That's the conversation I want to have with the policymakers so that we can make sure we do the right thing for those kids. Well, sticking with the governor's proposed budget, there is $10 million to promote, quote unquote, evidence-based best practices in reading instruction. And I did a speaking engagement for the New York State Association of School Business Officials, and they were quick to point out that this money flows through NYSA as opposed to school districts, and they were not happy about that. From your perspective, why is that the best way to realize the governor's goal of increasing literacy? So we're fully supportive of what the governor's proposing here in terms of spreading this science of reading approach, which is not just phonics. There's actually many components to the science of reading. But there's growing evidence that there are better instructional strategies for teaching kids to read. And it's this information has really solidified over the last five or so years. And so the governor's proposal is to ask the state education department to put out best practices and then to have districts do an actual curricular review to see if their programs and their curriculum are aligned with those best practices. Now, what we're going to be working on in partnership is through our education and learning trust is teachers teaching teachers best practices with regard to the science of reading. This isn't training. This is professional learning for educators. And we believe that this is the best way to make systemic change. Our members are used to curriculum coming in one year and then going out the next, right? They get a new new school leadership and then they buy a new package of materials and then they have to completely change what and how they're teaching. We know the best practices for the science of reading, and we believe that union-led professional development is the best approach to reach as many teachers as possible. There's a course right now being offered at SUNY New Paltz on the science of reading. It's been very popular, but it was being offered at a cost of five or $600 to take the class. And so what we proposed to the executive was we offer this class too let us offer it to our members for free so that they're still going to be taking it on their own time and having a stake in this, but take the burden of actually paying tuition off the table so that we can make this course available to as many educators as possible. So pivoting away from funding then, Politico New York's Caitlin Cordero has reported that there are legislative efforts to overhaul the uh, teacher evaluation process in New York with a new deal uh, potentially uh, being announced as early as this spring. Uh, In addition to less quantitative assessment of teachers, what is the union looking for in a new teacher evaluation system? So we're looking for a return to what we've termed local control. So allowing um, local administrators and their educators to come up with the system that works best for them in terms of evaluating educators. Back uh, in 2010, when the new APPR law came down, the state put some really rigid restrictions that didn't make sense uh, on educators, including mandating the use of test scores. And so we would like to go back to an approach that is more locally driven. You can still use test scores, but you won't have to use test scores. Uh, And that will help create a, a culture of mentoring and support as opposed to the sort of 
gotcha system that uh, has been designed. If you don't mandate tests, how do you compare teachers in one district to another? So if you're going to have something that's completely localized, how do you have any sort of meaningful comparison? We don't actually compare teachers now from one district to another. So the interest really is in taking our newest members, right, the educators who are right out of school, and providing them with the support and mentoring that they need early on in their career. What has been happening is at the building level, administrators are busy filling out paperwork and bureaucratic steps instead of actually being able to support their staff, which is what they want to be spending their time doing. So I guess coming back to the idea of a quantitative assessment, though, there's less wiggle room. It's less subjective. Would you be okay if there was an effort from administrators to push those types of assessments, those types of things where there is less objectivity to the assessments? There are still rubrics, right? And there are still quantitative elements, observations. The distinction, I think, would be that we're not necessarily requiring the use of student test scores, which are not necessarily indicative of teacher effort, right? Um, if you chose the, the poorest performing classroom, you don't necessarily say that that is all on that teacher, right? There's a whole host of factors that influence student performance. If that was the case, you know, you would assume um, our wealthiest districts have all the best teachers, right? And that's not actually true. There's a lot of factors that go into student performance. And what's the status in the interim when it comes to teacher evaluations prior to some sort of deal being struck? Are we still utilizing the current system? Are they hitting pause like they've done in previous parts of the pandemic. What's the system right now? Uh, the system is unpaused okay. uh, post-pandemic, and uh, we're using the current law. And we're hopeful that the law will get changed this year, and then locally they will develop new systems that will help support educators, administrators, and our students alike. And finally, a big issue for school administrators on the financial side is complying with a zero-emission bus mandate where by 2027 they have to stop buying uh, any sort of buses with emissions. And I think by 2035, the entire fleet needs to be zero emission. There's been some pushback about the actual logistics of realizing that. Does the teachers' union have any skin in that game? Are you guys agnostic uh, about the mandate? Do you care about additional time to phase it in or additional resources? Uh, how, uh, if at all, are you guys thinking about that? I mean, we we obviously support the effort to move to a more environmentally sustainable system, generally speaking. What we're hearing from uh, many of the school leaders is that this has been a real challenge, not just to cover the local share of the electric vehicle costs, but they've had to do major electrical grid updates. And sometimes even the town or the village doesn't have the, the capacity to support their bus garage. So they have to actually build a whole new bus garage. So there's, I think, a lot of things to be worked out with regard to this transition. We generally support it, but we want to make sure that our school districts get the support that they need to actually roll this out in an effective way. If that doesn't materialize support from Albany, do you think there is some merit to pausing or relaxing the restrictions? I think we would have to get closer to the deadline before we would make that kind of decision. In the interim, I know there are a lot of districts who have been planning for this um, and, you know, 
one of the districts I spoke to this morning was saying that's why their reserves are um, as high as they are is because they're saving to uh, cover the local share of the electric vehicles that they're going to have to purchase, right? So I would say I'm going to wait until we get a little closer to the deadline to see if uh, an extension or something like that might be required. Uh, but I think these conversations should be happening and we should be listening to the folks locally who are having to um, figure this out. That reserves anecdote will be a good line for your debate with Blake Washington. It would, right? I should, I should bring that up. <laughs> well, we've been speaking with Melinda Person. She is the head of the state's teachers union. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information.